don't be discouraged by what's happening. This is opening up a wider dialogue which needed to happen. This message needs to go forward. And the reason there's so much energy and animosity toward it is because it's changing lives and it's true. Remember Christ said he did not come to bring peace but to bring a sword. And it's the sword of truth that we're talking about, not a, not a violent sword. And it, and, it, and it is making a difference, and the devil really doesn't like it. That's why we're getting so much heat. Uh, you may or may not know that the Spectrum put an article out about a week or so ago. Watch the Spectrum over the next couple of days. I submitted an article yesterday. The purpose of the article is to qualify or, or describe what it is that we talk about in our class. And I've outlined 15 or 16 specific doctrinal points with references in the very beginning, I, I refute the moral influence theory very shortly, very succinctly, but just show its inadequacies, and then move on to the more, more significant problem, which is the penal substitution model. Moral influence theory is what we are labeled. And anyone who teaches a model of the healing aspects that Christ came to actually transform sinners and heal us from sin uh, has been labeled by the penal substitution forensic people as moral influence theory. And moral influence theory is basically this. That Christ came for the purpose of revealing truth about God, which would destroy Satan's lies in order to win us to trust, influencing us morally. That's a moral influence. We see the truth and we're morally influenced to be more moral people. And that's all that was required and nothing more. They label us that so they cannot actually hear anything we say. They can just discard us out of hand. Another euphemism for that is we teach a bloodless atonement. Well, bloodless atonement is a euphemism for moral influence theory. Uh, moral influence theory. Christ just had to reveal truth. He didn't really have to die for our salvation. Now, any of you that have come to our class know that that's not what we teach. But because it's easier to label something and discard it than to actually think about something that would expand your perspective, this is what's been happening. And if you've read the, the, the Spectrum article and all the comments down below it, which are quite a number at this point in time, those who um, would take a position opposed to ours, it's interesting, they all, as far as I can tell by reading it, they all say, well, I haven't been to the class, I haven't read anything he said, I haven't listened to anything he said, but he teaches moral influence theory. Yes. Basically, uh, our position is that when Adam sinned, he literally got changed by sin. He was a different being. We are now born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Humanity is no longer in a state of perfection that God designed us. We're in a state of sinfulness, which we believe is incompatible with eternal life. This sin leads to death. So we believe the plan of salvation is a process of God intervening to fix it. To heal us. The moral influence theory would say Christ came to reveal truth to these terminal sinners to win them to trust in God. And so we trust him, but we're still terminal because it provides no remedy. And that's the problem with the moral influence theory. We trust him because we see how trustworthy he is, but we're still terminal and we're going to die because he hasn't done anything to remedy our situation. Our position goes way beyond that. Yes, we all understand Christ had to reveal truth to win us to trust, but Christ also had to reverse the damage that sin had done to the human species and put the human species back in oneness, at one unity, harmony with God. And so in the human aspect of Jesus Christ, mankind became what God designed it to be in Adam. Christ, the second Adam, reversed all the damage that sin had done to this species in his own person. He lived out a perfect life. 
He destroyed, if you will. You know, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So in Jesus Christ, the infection of sinfulness was crucified or destroyed while he perfectly lived out the law of love. This is why when he rose again on the third day, he rose with a humanity that he perfected. And it says in Hebrews 5.8, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. This was the mission he had to complete uh, in order for us, the human race, to be reconciled back to God. And we were reconciled back to God in the person of Jesus Christ. And then he becomes the source through faith. The Holy Spirit takes all that Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us. It's a literal accomplishment. The, the penal substitution model, um, the difficulty with that model, is that model has it as a legal problem. Our problem is we're in legal trouble with God. God made a law. Law was broken. Now, in order for God to be just, he has to inflict penalties. Well, he's got to kill us. Uh, wait, wait. Uh, unless an innocent steps in his place and takes all of our sins upon himself and he kills the innocent in our place and we accept that payment, then we can be saved. Did anybody see any weaknesses in that theory? In the core is gross misunderstandings about the law of God. The uh, penal model sees the law of God as something that God enacted. He created the law. Our model sees the law of God as the law of love, which emanates from his person. He is love. That's his character, it's his nature. And then when he began to create, as the creator, everything he built, everything he constructed, was constructed to operate in harmony with the law of love. It was the construction template or the protocols upon which life was built. And the example we've used is, is breathing. Uh, respiration is part of this law. Every breath you breathe, you give away carbon dioxide, and the plants give back oxygen to you. A circle of giving. This is a metaphor. Somebody ties a plastic bag over their head. So they're now hoarding, they're selfish, they're taking their carbon dioxide, they're out of harmony with the law of giving. What's going to happen? They're going to die. But let's say someone comes and pays a legal penalty for them. They have a brother who comes over and shoots himself in the head first, and dies before you do, before you suffocate, and you say, okay, here, accept the blood payment of the brother. How does that help you as long as the bag's still tied over your head? It doesn't help you at all. And see, this legal payment aspect is the problem is we're in legal trouble with God has, has shifted the focus. And this is what it does. The focus of our problem is we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. And so we, we cannot be saved in our condition and we can't do anything to save ourselves. We, this is our problem. The penal substitution model shifts it to this is a problem. God is angry and wrathful. His law has been offended. And something has to be done to appease or assuage or pay the legal penalty. So we're no longer, it's about our sinful condition that needs healing. It's about God's anger and wrath that needs appeasing. And I suggest that that's a remnant of pagan theology that hasn't yet been eliminated from our thinking. And it needs to be eliminated. Notice, as just as Christ said in Matthew, I've not come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill the law. In our model, the law is not destroyed. It is established as the eternal, uncompromising protocols upon which life is only capable of operating. It is insoluble. It cannot be changed. It's immutable. So we establish the law, but we establish the basis of the law uh, as emanating from the heart and character of God rather than some enactment that he put upon, put upon us to obey. Does that, make, does that make sense to everyone? Well, let's go ahead and uh, begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together in fellowship and study today. We ask that your spirit will join us. May our minds be enlightened. May the, may the misunderstandings that we've all struggled with, because there's an enemy that wants us to misunderstand you, may those misunderstandings be removed. May, may we see you more clearly and by beholding you become like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.
And um, we are doing uh, lesson number 12 in our quarterly, Nutrition in the Bible. And the memory text is, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And I thought about that question and I, I asked, what does it mean to do something for the glory of God? She says, by reflecting Him, we give Him glory. And as I was researching for this class, I came across this in Acts of the Apostles. And, and tell me how, uh, this, just, this just really moved me. See how, how you feel about this. Acts of the Apostles, page 545. It says, Jesus loves those who represent the Father. And John, talking about John the Beloved, John could talk of the Father's love as no other of the disciples could. He revealed to his fellow men that which he felt in his own soul, representing in his character the attributes of God. The glory of the Lord was expressed in his face. The beauty of holiness which had transformed him shone with a Christ-like radiance from his countenance. In adoration and love, he beheld the Savior until until likeness to Christ and fellowship with him became his one desire. And in his character was reflected the character of his master. How does that sound to you? Oh, that's awesome. That is our goal, isn't it? And do you notice that, that, did you notice the process she described and how that came to be in John's life? How did it come to be that John was able to reflect in his character the character of God? By beholding God. He said it, by beholding God, by beholding we are changed. If we don't actually see God for who he is, if we don't know him for who he is, then we can't become like him. If in fact we worship another God construct, an, an ugly or, or angry God construct, we won't reflect this in our character. Would this, uh, this idea though, because we're talking about nutrition in the Bible this week, would this idea of reflecting God in our character, in our lives, would it have anything to do with nutrition? Does nutrition, diets, have anything to do with reflecting God in our lives at all? Any thoughts about that? She said it has to do with our brain health. Any other thoughts? Yes. If we want to live a life of service and of love, we have to be in decent shape so we can see clearly so that we have the health to be able to serve and give of ourselves perfectly. So she's saying that if we want to want to live a life of of service and love, that we have to be in good physical and mental health so we have the ability, and a healthy lifestyle helps us remain, that, remain in that healthy, light, uh, healthy ability to carry those things out. So if we move into Sunday's lesson with these thoughts in mind, it asks about the original diet. What was the original diet as far as we know? Fruits, grains, nuts. I've heard some people say vegetables were at, added after the fall. I, I like to believe that's true. <laughs> yeah, I like to believe that's true. Uh, be, to, to, let them, uh, to let us experience some of the bitterness of sin, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, don't you notice a qualitative difference in taste between fruits, nuts, grains, and then those other things called vegetables? <laughs> I just seem that the fruits, nuts, and grains always seem to taste just a little better and more appealing than those vegetables do. I mean, really, who wants some kale and Brussels sprouts? I mean, <laughs> turnip greens, yes. Oh, no, 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 we don't want to hear this. No, 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 no. Thank you, Mom. No, 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 don't, don't, don't say that, no. 
You can talk to her privately if you would like to know what she was going to say. Okay? Yes. It's always dangerous to have your mother in the, in the class, isn't it? So anyway, but, the, but it was a vegetarian diet. It was a vegetarian diet. And think about, who, in the context, whose, whose image was mankind made in? God's, of course. Does, does the food that we were eating in the garden have anything to tell us about God? Does it, does it tell us anything about God that in the garden there were no slaughterhouses? Yeah, and they were, they were given two godly uh, abilities in the garden. Do you remember those two godly abilities they were given? Procreation and dominion. So who was under their dominion? All the animals. Yeah, everything, including the animals. Now, do, do, do plants have the breath of life? Plants. Did God breathe into plants the breath of life? No, you won't find that described. The animals have breath of life. Now, while the plants are alive, they don't have the, the breath of life. I don't know why it makes, it makes a difference, but that ruach, that, that pneuma, that, that spirit, the, the, the animals have. Do you think in this microcosm of the universe that tells us in 1 Corinthians 4 that we are a spectacle, a theater to angels and men, that as they're looking down, Adam and Eve uh, representing the Godhead, do you think that these various animals, in a certain way, represents various other created beings in the universe? It almost represents higher intelligences. Higher intelligences, maybe? Here for lower intelligences. Which gap do you think is bigger? The gap between a chimpanzee and man in our intelligent ability, that gap bigger, or the gap between Lucifer and God? Which gap is bigger? Wow. So when we think, oh, no, that couldn't represent that because they are so far beneath us, how far beneath God is Lucifer? So might, in fact, the planet in its original state, Adam and Eve were to govern, to have dominion, to rule over and how were they to rule? What methods were they to rule over? So how would they have treated these, these creatures that were beneath them? They would have slaughtered and eat, eaten them, right? Yes, they wouldn't have. What would it say about God if they did? Yeah, it's interesting. Because uh, uh, we're talking about how we bring glory to him. Think about the, your car you drove in here, here today with. Um, I'm going to make the assumption that most of you drew, drove in a car that took unleaded fuel. What happens if you put diesel in that instead? It's going to plug up pretty quick, isn't it? What fuel did God design your body to run upon? What fuel did God design your body to run upon? Plant food or animal food? Were you designed to run on you know, fruits, nuts, grains, and vegetables, or were you designed to run on meat? So just like your car, what happens if you put meat products into your body? It clogs it up. That's exactly what happens. The system becomes clogged. We're so marvelously made, so much, so much more efficient than a, than a car, that sometimes it takes years to clog the system. But that's exactly what happens to the system. The system gets clogged. Because this is not the fuel we were designed to run upon. Do we have problems with our society here in America eating the wrong fuel? 
1976 to 80, uh, in that time period, they did a, a look at the, the percentage of Americans with obesity. Anybody want to take a guess? And back in 76 to 80, that was when I was in high school, uh, my high school years, what was the percentage of American, that, Americans that have obesity back then? Anybody take a guess? Uh, is that here all over the place? 15%. 15% uh, in, by the end of 1980. How about by 1994? 14 years later, what percent? What's 15%? What about 94? 25% obese. How about year 2000? Year 2000. 32% of Americans are now obese in year 2000. One-third of Americans obese. Do we have a problem in the foods, the fuel that we're taking into our body? Diabetes in America has, uh, in the last uh, 25 years, increased in the, in the age group 30 to 39. People 30 to 39, uh, in the last 25 years, uh, diabetes increased 70% in that age group. 70% increase in diabetes. And, oh, and one in three of those diabetics don't even know they're diabetic. One in three. We have a problem in the foods that we eat, don't we? Let's look at Monday's lesson in the first paragraph says, as Christians, we should not forget the fact that the first sin of humanity dealt with appetite. Adam and Eve were told not to eat of, the, of a certain tree, and they ate of it anyway. This was sin, pure and simple. Hence, however much we must be careful not to make an idol out of diet, we must not diminish its importance. In the midst of so many voices, we need to seek wisdom in order to find the right balance in how we should eat and drink. Question. First sentence. As Christians, we should not forget the fact that the first sin of humanity dealt with appetite. True or false? false. That is just completely false. And let's walk through why. And this is, again, this is, this, I'm going to tell you, this type of, why this is in here? This is penal substitution thinking. Because penal substitution thinking has rules, and rules uh, focus on behaviors, and behaviors are, you know, are bad, and so we do the bad be- This is what Paul talks about in Hebrews 5 when he says, you guys should be grown-ups, uh, but you're still in spiritual milk. You don't have any equate with righteousness. You're still fo- focusing on acts that lead to death. In other words, you're still focusing on behavior. So, question. Let's go back to Garden of Eden and ask some questions. Do you think uh, the serpent was saying, hey, Eve, this food over here on this tree, it is so tasty, it is so delicious, it is the most scrumptious, it's, it'll make all that other tree stuff you're eating out there just taste like dirt. You need to taste this food, because it's the best tasty stuff in the, in the uh, garden. Is that, was, was that the temptation? No. Was Eve hungry and famished, and, and she, she had such intense appetite cravings that, that she just couldn't, her, her drooling down her mouth, she just couldn't resist and had to take that food? This was not a temptation of appetite. It says in Review and Herald, January 5, 1886, Eve believed the words of Satan and the belief of the falsehood in regard to God's character changed the condition and character of both herself and her husband. They were changed from good and obedient children into transgressors. What was the temptation? Was it one of appetite or was it one of distrusting God? to believe the lies of Satan that God could not be trusted. And then once that was believed, hey, God isn't good. God's not watching out for me. God's a power monger. He's trying to keep me down. Once you believe that God can't be trusted, then the door opens up to act in self-interest to take the fruit. Well, if he's not going to help me, I better get that fruit before he gets rid of the tree and I lose my chance to get ahead. Do we still have problems with the same stuff going on today in our church? 
was the behavior of taking the fruit the primary problem or was it the secondary result? Do you notice? I can tell you I've had some dialogues with really, some decent people recently that hold the penal substitution model and their position is it was taking the fruit was the primary problem because in taking the fruit it was rebellion against God's rule and rebellion against God's rule is sin. What would you say to that? And I'm trying to point out that it was the change in heart, mind, attitude toward God that led to the behavior problem. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, you say if you commit adultery, bad behavior, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. What is Jesus telling us? The heart condition leads to the behavior actions, don't they? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings forth evil out of the evil stored up in him. You see, our model has the position that we have defective hearts and minds. Not of our own choosing, by the way. This is another big difference between our model and the penal model. You realize in this room, none of us made the choice to be a sinner. We were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. You didn't have a choice in the matter. Therefore, God, and God knows that. And so God does not hold us accountable for the fact we are sinners. We didn't have a choice as individuals. Adam and Eve made that choice for us. However... And, and the example you've heard me give before is imagine an HIV-infected woman and an HIV-infected man and get together and have a child born HIV-infected. What did the child do wrong? Nothing. Didn't do a thing wrong. It's not his fault. But doesn't the child still have a condition which, if unremedied, results in death? That's our position. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, dead in trespass and sin. And we have a condition which, if unremedied, results in death. So, how about now the HIV-infected kid... Growing up, got symptoms. Symptoms are inevitability when you're HIV infected. Do we have an inevitability of having symptoms of sin in our lives? But now there's a a free remedy. Somebody develops a free remedy, offers the kid a cure for HIV, and the kid refuses the cure. Will that be his fault? That's our position. Christ came to provide remedy to sinfulness. It is not our fault we're born in this situation. It's not even our fault we struggle with symptoms of sin in our life because it's inevitable. The heart, human heart alone cannot overcome sin. We'll have symptoms. But Christ has offered us remedy that can free us from the domination of our carnal nature, that can give us the freedom to live a new and better life. If we refuse Christ in our life, if we refuse his remedy, is that our fault? Yes, that's our fault. It's a big difference. Penal model says no, 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 no. Every act of sin, every deed requires its punishment. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Desire of Ages, page 761. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Satan's doctrine that sin has to be punished. That'd be like HIV-infected kid growing up and having symptoms. Every symptom of HIV must be punished. Really? He's coughing. Get out a belt and beat him for coughing. This is what this is being suggested. And it's wrong. Every symptom of HIV needs to be cured. Every symptom. And what does the Bible describe it in Isaiah? How does it describe us as sick with sores from head to toe? In need of healing and restoration. And all the metaphors of scripture, I will take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. Write the law on the hearts and minds. Rebirth, recreation, new mind, new heart, right spirit. Every one of them are the same. Interestingly enough, in the document I'm putting forward, it's going to come out in the spectrum. 
the bullet points I put out, uh, we're, we're going to have it up on our website, and every one of those points will be linked to a sharing fact sheet, which will have the biblical and spirit of prophecy references to show this. And one of the spirit of prophecy references on forgiveness, because the penal model sees forgiveness as a legal enactment. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And the way they interpret that is, without Christ's death, God couldn't legally pardon us. Ellen White, in our position, Ellen White says it explicitly, that forgiveness is reclaiming from sin. Think that through. Forgiveness is reclaiming from sin. It's not just a mere pardon. It's an actual reclaiming from. Taking us out of sin, or taking sin out of us. Multiple statements in which she talks about forgiveness is cleansing from sin. And she even quotes the quote from, from David, creating an, uh, in me a clean heart and right spirit as being the uh, forgiveness. And this is what the penal model misses. And this is why it leaves people with this false security of having your sins paid for, having forgiveness stamped by the record books in heaven, but not having yourselves cleansed in heart and mind and renewed by the Spirit. You made a quote of great controversy, did you? Dealing with birds, Satan? Uh, yeah, it was uh, Desire of Ages, page 761. Desire of Ages, every sin must mean its punishment, urged Satan. As we think about diet and nutrition, is there anything beyond nutritional value, any benefit to us beyond the nutritional aspects of maintaining a healthy diet, besides the nutritional aspects? Any, any other benefits? Exactly. It's a process of gaining self-mastery or self-governance, self-discipline. To say no to one's cravings or appetites, we strengthen the, the neural circuits of the anterior cingulate cortex where we have this capacity for self-governance and restraint. And we will, by denying the activation of limbic system circuits, over time that they will be pruned back. We actually have uh, ability to help God, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, change us neurologically by choosing the healthy path. So it's not just nutritional benefit, it's neural circuitry benefit we get from uh, living a healthy lifestyle. Yes? Would you say there's a difference in refraining from meat because you have a respect for animals or because you're trying to keep yourself healthy? It depends on which consequence you're looking at. Restraining from meat in any form, for any reason, will have physical benefit for you, not putting the, the, those harmful fuels into your system. As far as your character goes and your mindset and attitude goes, yes, it does make a difference for the reasons that you do things. Um, if you're doing things like so you're, you're refraining from meat because, well, there's a rule and the church says not to do it. And if you do it, that you're, it's, it's going to be marked down against you in the books of heaven. And one day you're going to have to pay that penalty. What kind of attitude will build in your heart from restraining from meat? Resent. Resentfulness. Uh, a, a, a uh, obedience out of obligation breeds rebellion in the heart. So, but if you're convinced in your own mind, hey, it's good for my health and that's why I do it, then you have freedom, you have character development. If you go to another level and say, you know what, I realize not only do I get this good health benefits from it, but you know what, I can reveal God's governance, God's, God's dominion over things as I have, and the things that I have dominion over are a, a giver and a protector of life rather than a taker of life. You see, you can take it to another level even yet. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now that, and we have to remember we live in a world of sin. And when I put that whole thing in here, I'm putting, if we have reasonable alternatives. You see, there are circumstances where eating fish or chicken uh, might be the most reasonable thing to do in the world that we live in right now. I've always, I've gathered so much more respect for God when it dawned on me that God created our bodies to live in the perfect world of eating, but also to be able to tolerate far extremes of diet outside of eating. What kind of machine do you know that can live on only blubber, fish, or only bananas, or only beans and rice almost, you know? And yet our body 
companies that are adaptable enough where we all around the world have been able to you know, use what was at hand and still live. I don't know if you all could hear that, but she said, could everybody hear that? No? She said that she's in marvels at how, at how wonderful God made us, that, that even though we were originally designed to live on the fuels of the foods in Eden, that outside of Eden, that our physical body has been able to survive and live on a wide variety of fuels and diverse cultures and circumstances, from blubber in the whale blubber up in the Eskimos to, to uh, very, very um, meager diets of beans and rice to uh, other types of diets, that not all with the same health benefits, but still being able to utilize those resources and continue to survive, uh, a testimony to how incredible the machinery of the body is able to work. Um, when you think about clean and unclean meats in the scriptures, and the lesson points us that direction, uh, how do you understand clean and unclean meats? What's, what's, how do you break it down? What's your understanding of the reasons for clean and unclean meats? It's health reasons. He says health reasons. Is there any, is there any underlying um, difference in the animals? Yes. The animals that aren't eating each other are healthier. Okay, he said animals that don't eat other animals are healthier than animals that eat animals because the animals that eat animals often eat the sickest and the weakest uh, of the animals, the ones who can't run the fastest, the ones who can't defend themselves, uh, which would which would pass along more sickness within that population. Um, there, there is evidence for that. For instance, have you heard of toxoplasmosis? Toxoplasmosis is, a, is an infection that infects cats, and you can get it in cat urine. And if pregnant women get it, it can cause um, miscarriage. Uh, so that's why a lot of pregnant women are told don't handle the cat boxes and things. But this, the life cycle of the toxoplasmosis organism, it goes through a, the mouse. It goes through the mouse in order to complete its life cycle. And when it reproduces in the mouse, it actually infects the mouse brain causing the mouse brain to become somewhat psychotic so they will, pre- they will no longer hide from cats. They lose their fear of cats and they will walk out in front of cats. So the cat then can eat them and then it, complete it, like it has to go through both cats and mice in order to complete its li- life cycle. And so this, this organism passes back and forth between the two animals, altering the, the, uh, the brain of the mice so it can continue to produce. So again, your point, the cat eating the mouse gets the organism in the cat. Uh, wouldn't happen if the cat was a vegetarian. Yes. I see this process as just one more, one more intervention of God that uh, giving, giving humanity what it wanted. And his original diet was, was vegetarian, but the Israelites demanded meat. We want meat. We missed the flesh pots of Egypt. So he said, okay, if you're going to eat meat, here are some guidelines between which meats are better for you and which meats are not better. Yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right in that context, but at the flood. Was there a distinction between clean and unclean meats going on the ark? Yes, there was. Seven of the clean, two of the unclean, remember? I want to follow up a little bit more on the point about um, toxins. Uh, everybody remember a, uh, a pesticide called DDT? Yeah, it's not used anymore, but it almost caused the, a bald eagle to go extinct. And the reason for that is DDT was not sprayed on bald eagles. DDT was sprayed as a pesticide on plants. Uh, for by farmers and other things. And then the little mouse and the little gerbils and the little field rats would come along and eat the plants, and they would get a certain level of DDT, which was not toxic enough to cause them harm. And then the snakes and uh, other types of middle uh, predators would eat the mice and the, and the um, 
field, field rats and so forth. And then the eagles, top of the predatory chain, would come and eat those. And at every level, the DDT level would concentrate higher as you go up the food chain. And by the time it got to the eagles, the DDT levels were so high, they were losing their capacity to reproduce anymore. And so this, there's this toxic building effect of toxins build the higher you go up the food chain. Yeah, Scott. Two points. Um, yeah, I think the, the gist of it, not just based on whether the animals eat other animals, that doesn't explain some of the clean meats, such as fish, that eat other fish. So it's, it's more of the ones that are basically the refuse eaters, the scavengers, those that are put on the planet, clean up the planet, more than whether they eat other animals or not. And the other question I have was, well, let, let me finish that point so everybody can hear what you said before he goes that. He said that, that there's this aspect, and I, I like this. I think he's exactly right. There are certain animals on this planet that are refuse eaters. They're, they're the septic cleaners, basically. They're the filter feeders. They're, you know, like catfish, you know, they go along the bottom and they clean all the stuff that falls out of the other fish to the bottom. And so do shrimp and clams, and oysters, and mussels, and all these things are constantly filtering the water, taking all the nastiness out, and this is what they're doing. And so if there are toxins in the system, they're going to build up in these particular organisms. And I think you're exactly right. God is saying, hey, if you insist on eating meat, which is really not good for you because I designed you to eat this other stuff, uh, stay away from all those and eat these. It'll be least damaging to you. Go ahead, next point. Yeah. In the aftermath of the flood, they were given permission to eat meat at that point. But at that point, he said Well, actually, the distinction was made before the flood when they went on the ark, seven of the clean, and and so uh, eating. He made an allowance at that time because, let's face it, I mean... I was going to bring that point up. He made the allowance, but was the, was the allowance because, one, they wanted to? Was there also another potential reason for that? Is it possible that eating meat contributed to the shortening lifespan? Yeah, I'm not thinking of meat. I'm just saying that... Is that possible? Yeah. I think something we forget is that there's a lot of animal food entered into commercial... Uh, foods that chickens and, and pigs and cows and so forth are fed. You don't have to go out and scavenger a dead animal. They just eat the food that's... Yeah, he's also pointing out now with commercial meat industry that the uh, traditional herbivores, like cows, are now omnivores, as in the commercial industry they take basically from the slaughterhouses all the, all the leftover nasty meat products when they slaughter an animal and all the stuff that should be thrown away. They'll scavenge it up in truckloads and ship over, mix it in with some grain and stuff, and feed it back to the cows. Okay, so the cows are now eating all this nasty stuff that shouldn't be eaten by anybody either. And so even when you eat from the store-bought, uh, you know, uh, supposedly clean meat, it's pretty nasty stuff these days. And the, and the, and the animals are so unhealthy these days that they have to inject them with high doses of antibiotics to keep them alive for slaughter because a lot of them wouldn't even live. So, yeah, I, I think the meat industry in the commercial era is, is not anything like what was happening in Bible times. Yes? As I understand it, the reason God allowed men's lives to be shortened was one of love, not punishment. He, he felt that it, it would be better if we're going to be sinners that we sin for 70 years or 120 rather than 1,000. It was 
He said it was an act of God's love and mercy that lifespans were shortened because we live in sin and it would uh, give the opportunity for us to experience salvation. But for those who persist in evil living, it shortens down the evil that they can commit and, and perpetrate upon others. Imagine if you know the Stalins and the Hitlers and, and those guys uh, lived 900 years. It would be quite a horrific world, wouldn't it? Nero. Nero lives 900 years. Um, yeah, we'd still be dealing with Nero today almost. <laughs> yes. I just want to clarify, and I'm not saying this to try to justify unclean deeds, but I, I do try to make sure that we don't forget parts of Scripture to just always you know, say what we've been told. And so I just found in Genesis chapter 9, verse, my eyes are being old. This is everything that lives and moves will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you the egg. Okay. that's a great point, that if they were to start slaughtering the rhinoceros and the elephants and the giraffes and, and eating those animals, we wouldn't have those today. Because they didn't reproduce. <laughs> you know, at least, at least the first pair. Maybe sometime down the road. But the point, though, is in general, we're free to eat anything we want. God's not going to stop us from eating anything. In fact, there are cultures on earth that eat, eat people. There are cannibal cultures. They did it. God didn't stop them. The point is, what happens to us when we do that? <laughs> what happens to us? It stunts your growth. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, I know it. They sure are. She's saying they give animals today hormones so they'll grow faster. Yes, I want to move on. Yes. Just a, and, and I don't know if anyone's ever done it, but you, you can take uh, both or like a Japanese beetle, grind them up in a blender, spray them on your plants, and the other Japanese beetle come along and eat it and they kill he said you can take Japanese beetles, grind them up in your blender, and make a, a liquid concoction out of them, spray it on your plants, and the other Japanese beetles will come along and eat the plant that has sprayed on it to kill them. So basically, yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not designed to eat each other, I guess, is what he's saying. Okay. Um, do the foods we eat affect our brain? Yes. There's certain restrictions that the U.S. government imposes upon people who want to give blood in this country. And if you've got living great record for a certain number of period years, particularly a certain time period, you cannot put the blood in this country. Can you just touch on it real quick about this meat eating? I mean, the, the, the bovines, especially when it's a lot of do you guys know about mad cow disease? 
Yeah, it's a prion disease, and it's uh, basically from eating nerve, nervous tissue of an animal. It's where it's passed along. The reason the cows are getting it and in the food chain is because what I mentioned earlier, they're taking the byproducts that shouldn't be eaten, grinding them up and feeding them back to the cows, and so their infected cows would be passing along these prions, and then people would eat the meat and get the prions and get mad cow disease. Uh, so it's just that the, basically the point being that the food chain in commercial industry is um, not safe. <laughs> it's just not safe. But, I mean, you can't get blood if you live in Great Britain between one year and another year. Or if you're a citizen that's been more than five years there, you cannot get blood. Because they suspect you're not safe. Yeah. All right. Does, do the foods we eat affect mood and brain? Yeah. Um, well, you guys know what neurotransmitters are. Neurotransmitters we have are actually produced from various uh, uh, foods that we eat. And I've got some, uh, some specific scientific data in the notes for those who want those. Um, most of these are synthesized based on some precursor proteins and things that we eat. A diet that is uh, carbohydrate-rich and protein-poor increases the amount of brain serotonin available. Conversely, a protein-rich diet and a carbohydrate-poor diet actually diminishes serotonin. Serotonin causes you to have a better mood. Low serotonin, you're more irritable, more moody, more risk to depression. The synthesis of serotonin comes from a, a precursor uh, amino acid uh, called tryptophan. And uh, tryptophan and other uh, similar uh, amino acids, when you have a lot of uh, protein in your diet, they all compete for the same transporter to get transported in your brain. So if you're eating a high-protein diet, then the, the one transporter transports tryptophan and like five other proteins into your brain, and they all compete equally, so it depends on the concentration of tryptophan to these other proteins about how much tryptophan is getting transported into your brain. If you eat a low-protein diet, um, the, uh, the low-protein diet that you eat, tryptophan is still available, but the other proteins reduce in your diet, um, and therefore the transporter has greater access to transport the tryptophan into your brain. You get higher serotonin levels. And not only that, a high-carbohydrate diet causes an increase in insulin production. And insulin will drive um, the um, muscles to use up and grab these other competing amino acids, but they don't grab up tryptophan. So tryptophan stays available in the bloodstream where the other competing amino acids are removed, so you're able to uh, drive... Uh, and when I'm saying carbohydrate diet, this is a plant-based diet. Plant-based diets high in carbohydrate, complex carbohydrates. But this benefit is only true for people who are non-diabetic and non-obese. See, obesity causes diabetes type 2. It means you become insulin resistant. So the insulin is there, but now the muscles and the fat become resistant to the action of the insulin. So you don't get reductions in these competing proteins. You don't get an increased boost of, of uh, tryptophan into the brain. You don't get this mood-elevating effect. In fact, you get the opposite effect. And guess what can cause uh, not only overeating, but guess what causes insulin resistance? Chronic, unremitting anxiety or stress or firing in the amygdala, which activates the immune response, which kicks up the cytokines we talked about, which cause insulin resistance. Well, what causes that? Worshipping an angry and wrathful God. I'm not kidding. Worshipping an angry, wrathful God activates amygdala. Good brain science show this. And so this contributes to the same problem. It leads to uh, more moodiness, more irritability, uh, more risk of uh, mental health problems, anxiety and depression over the course of time. Uh, so there is a direct effect on the foods that we eat. We eat a high-protein, high-meat-based diet. That puts us more at risk. If we worship an angry, wrathful God, that puts us more at risk. Don't you find that fascinating? Yes. 
He says, we're getting the meat out of our diet as an Adventist. It's time we get the angry, wrathful God construct out of our diet. Amen. Amen. Yes. Question. You might want to answer this later, but are there different kinds of protein? Because I think we get protein from beans too, right? Yeah, we do get protein from beans, yes. Um, yeah, I think it's the I think it's the ratio of, of protein to carbohydrates. Yeah, and the animal proteins are much more protein, less carbohydrate. The the uh, plant based proteins have carbohydrates associated with them. He said, "Is it possible that trying to eat a perfect diet is a means of appeasing an angry and wrathful God?" I was about to ask, do you think, have you ever been in a culture, not, none we probably have too much contact with, but a culture that has a caste system of hierarchical eaters? Did you all follow what I just said? In other words, a caste system meaning that there's different levels of righteousness depending on how much animal product you have in your diet. The less animal product of any kind, the more vegan you are, the more righteous you are. And then you go down the list, down the list, down the list, okay? Have you ever been in a system like that where, where what you eat determines your level of righteousness? It, it, what do you think about that system? It, yes. And where does pepper and mustard fall in? <laughs> pepper and mustard, he wants to know about. Where does the pepper and mustard fall in? Yeah. Fried chicken linkettes. You know, um, we, have our, we have our little funny rules, don't we? And do you see when we move? This is what happens when we move from principle to scripted rules. The penal system always ends up with scripted rules. This is what they had in Christ's day. They had their rules, and they kept their rules. They followed their rules. And then they crucified the one who was trying to teach them principles. Wanting them off the cross so they go home and keep their rule of Sabbath observance. This is always what happens. We want to move past rules to principles. And I can tell you in our own church, I see this all the time. I have patients that come to see me. I have, I have hear horror stories in our church of people who have gone to some of our institutions or sanitariums and are on, on the rule system. You can't do this. You can't do that. You've got to eat this. You've got to avoid that. You can't take this medicine. Don't do that thing. Um, because it's all, Rather than looking at the principle of, hey, what we want to do, whatever situation we're in, we want to promote health, healing, wellness, recovery, restoration of godliness. That's what we want to do. We want to use the interventions that are most likely to restore you as close as we possibly can in our sinful fallen state to what God designed mankind in Eden to be. Isn't that what we should be constantly moving toward? Those are the principles involved. And we know that if we're, if we're applying Satan's principles, that we won't move that direction. We'll move into more ill health and, and, uh, and problems. If we apply godly principles, we always are moving in a healthy direction. Physical health, mental health, spiritual health, relational health. Everything gets healthier we apply God's principles. Yes? He says, is it possible to eat the right foods, but do it with a resentful attitude and then lose the benefits? Absolutely. If we don't have peace, if we have a sense of, of resentment, of tension, oh, I really don't want to be doing this, but I know I have to, and there's a begrudging attitude toward it, you actually fire all those negative circuits, and those negative circuits fire, cause that whole inflammatory cascade, and you can actually undermine your health, health worse by, by doing that. Yes. There was actually... A, um, uh, there's some, I, I can't remember it, I, I don't want to say for sure, but I, so I'll say I think. Okay? I think 
there was a study, might be wrong, but implicated this idea that if you exercise in an exercise which you don't like doing, and the whole time you're doing it, you're miserable, you hate it, you're just, oh, I hate this, miserable, that that negative cascade really counteracts the benefit you were going to get from the exercise. Conversely, if you do the same caloric burn in an exercise that you enjoy doing, you get a positive benefit from it. So the mental attitude while doing it, isn't there a study along those lines? Yeah, I see their heads nodding. Yeah, study along those lines show. So the mental attitude is every bit as important as the actual behavior itself. And this is why the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't say he loves a giver. Because if you give begrudgingly, if you give with resentment, you've got a duty. Oh, boy, I really could use that tithe money for my new boat. But it's the Lord's. I've got to give it. Okay? If that's your attitude in giving, you won't be blessed. But see, the, 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 the legal model was a, well, yeah, but you, you kept the rule. You paid your money, so God's not obligated to pour open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you because he's promised it, and that's the rules. You've done it, so, you know, you, you've paid your fee. You get your right in. Yeah. And so that no one leaves here thinking that we are saying you shouldn't do all these good things. We're we're probably going to do very similar things, but for a totally different reason. One that will create health in the mind and heart rather than the fear that comes with legalistically doing it. Yes, and the example you've heard me give is why does everybody in this room brush their teeth? Because there's your mom had a rule and you have to keep the rules? Or is it, some, is it a burden to you to do it? It's like, oh, this is such hard work. I hate it. I hate Dennis. I hate Dennis, okay. <laughs> but is it, is it hard work? No, we do it, we do it gladly because we understand the reasons for it. But if you should, if you should just one day skip, you just, oh, you get, you're running late, you don't have time, you don't do it. Are you afraid now you're going to get punished for not brushing your teeth that morning? See, we don't live in fear. When we live on principles, we don't live in fear. So, if, oh, we ate something, uh, got something that we went to somebody's house, they served, and after you've eaten, you found out, oh, that had pork in it. Oh, no, I'm going to go burn. Oh, no. You get all this type of guilt stuff. You go, oh, well, I wouldn't have chosen that. But you know what? It's like I skipped my brushing my teeth one day. You just, keep, you just keep eating what I normally eat. It's not that big a deal. You see? That's the big difference. We, those, those who don't understand principles live by rules, then, then they live in fear. Fear of, of breaking a rule, fear of stepping over a line, fear of, of you know, doing something wrong. Yes. Oh, she's, she says people often do this out of self-righteousness and then worship themselves. Yes. And I was going to ask the question, have you ever had, and let's close with this, have you ever had that opportunity to speak to non-Adventists about the health message? And then they will quote things out of scripture that everything God has given is good for food or um, uh, the ceremonial law was done away with or what Christ said, it's not what goes into a man but that makes him clean or unclean, what comes out of a man. And they will quote this and say, look, everything's free to eat. And I, when I talk to non-Adventist groups, I talk to a lot of them, I will all automatically affirm them. Uh, I said, one of Satan's tricks is to deceive us with subtle deceptions with pieces of truth. Truth. At the cross, ceremonial law was done away with. At the truth. Absolutely true. And so because of that, many people have been tricked into believing that at the cross, the laws of health were done away with. Laws of health were not done away with. And so if you think you can eat everything you want, you're right, and you won't be ceremonially unclean. But guess what? Your health will still be damaged. And you see the eyes pop open. Whoa, never thought of that. Because they've been in this other thinking. We eat the foods we have permission to eat because it's about getting in trouble with him 
rather than living a life based on the principles that God designed life to live upon. And so we want to shift our thinking. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask for your grace and love to be poured upon us. We need your presence with us. Enlighten our mind to know you. May we go forward and be able to share the truth about your kingdom to those who are still struggling with a rules-oriented penal model of how you run your universe. Send your agencies to hold back the the principalities and powers of darkness who are working to shut down this light because we know you have told us that the final message of mercy to lighten the world for your coming is the truth about your character of love. And those in this room, we want to see you face to face very soon. So help this message go forward. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.